Ten years ago, my dad had a heart attack. Uh, he was 62 years old, and uh, we were very worried. He had a fa has a family history of heart disease. Both his parents died in their 50s of heart attacks. And uh, I think we, we kind of sensed, you know, this could be it. Now, my dad has his wits about him, and he also had some aspirin. So he managed to take some and uh, reduce the effects of the heart attack that evening and control it. And in the end, he, we, he uh, came through fine. But for a while, um, it, it looked a bit touch and go, and he had to have an operation involving putting some little um, metal stents, they're called, into his arteries. They're inserted into the body, and they, they hold the artery out and stop it from uh, closing in and furring up. And so, we, we, again, we had the, the procedure of them putting the stents into his heart, and there's this sense of fear and apprehension. Are we going to lose him? Post-op, he was on the ward in a large hospital in South London, and I went straight from work and went down all these endless corridors and finally found him in a ward, one of four beds, and somebody said, just to, to make you aware that this ward has got MRSA in it. MRSA is a superbug that breeds in hospitals, and it can be particularly dangerous to the vulnerable and weak. This was in the hospital. Hospital, which of all the places in the world you would want to be clean and safe and a place of healing, was at that moment infected, unsafe and potentially a place of death. Now, what is the right response to something like that? It's not, ah, oh, well, you've had a good innings. You know, there's been a lot of budget cuts in the NHS recently. The proper response, actually, is anger. Anger, not an out-of-control rage, but a righteous anger at things that should not be. According to the Bible, anger is actually a gift from God it's given to us to motivate us to change things that otherwise we might not get round to. But our problem is not really that we get angry. Our problem is that we get angry with the wrong things at the wrong time and in the wrong amount. And at that time, I was angry. Now, your first response is to blame the cleaners. You could look under the bed that my dad was in and see there was a thick layer of dust and a few bits of rubbish. It obviously hadn't been cleaned for quite some time. But there's another level further up than the cleaners, more influential, and that's the management, the leadership, because over, they have the overall responsibility. And whatever else may be going on in the hospital, it should be clean, shouldn't it? You should be angry. Now, something like this happens in our text today. The Jerusalem temple was a unique place on earth. It was the place where God said he would come and live specially with humanity. He would dwell there in a special, remarkable, and concentrated way. So if you wanted to know God and worship him in the right way, you had to go there. You had to get on your donkey and travel to Jerusalem. So it ought to be a place that was clean, safe, and a place of healing. But something had gone badly wrong. And in this story, in John chapter 2, we see a side of Jesus that some people are not very comfortable with. This is not the Jesus who ends up on Christmas cards. This is furious Jesus. He's in the temple courts, making an improvised whip and driving people and animals out of the place. He's causing a furore. He goes to the, the tables where they have all the money lined up for currency exchange, and he literally turns them over. So you've got coins scattering everywhere and people trying to pick them up. You've got animals bellowing and bleating. You've got absolute carnage. 
Is this gentle Jesus, meek and mild? This furious Jesus, raging against the machine. Get these out of here! It's an extraordinary scene. It's a complete contrast to what we thought about last week. Last week, we were at a wedding in a town called Cana, and Jesus was the dream guest. He's so polite. The wine ran out, and he quietly solved the crisis. He brings 900 bottles of wine by transforming some large jars of water into fine wine through his power. You might say he created the ultimate party. And by changing water to wine, it says that he revealed his glory, revealed who he was, revealed that he's the God of wine, the creator who makes things that give us joy. He revealed that he's the king of kings, the promised Messiah who would come and bring an age of abundance and plenty. And he reveals that he's also the transformer of hopeless situations. Because he took a poor family's potential shame and disgrace and turned it into honor and glory. He graciously took away their shame. But what about this week? It looks like the greatest party maker has become the greatest party pooper. Gets his whip and causes a furore. Now we need to see that these two portraits of Jesus Christ are actually two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. The Lord who changes water into wine is also the Lord who clears the temple courts. The Lord who fills your table with good things sometimes is the Lord who turns your life upside down and spills everything on the ground. He's the same Lord, and he does that without any explanation. And if we're going to have a robust Christian faith, we need this story as well as water into wine. It's a necessary complement to last week. Because if you only have the Lord of the wine, your faith will not be ready when life goes wrong. If you only have the Lord of the wine, you won't be ready for the Lord of the whip. Last week, we were discussing um, the sermon in our midweek life group. And one of our members said, it's great that God wants us to have a fun-filled life. Now, that is sort of true. But you know, the timing is everything. God does want us to have a life full of joy and happiness, but in this life, it may well not be fun-filled all the time. And that's why we need a future focus and a confidence in the greatness of the furious Jesus. John's gospel, this entire book, is written so that we may believe. And here's our series title. We might believe and have life in his name. It says that at the end of the book. Uh, I've written these things down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and by believing, have life in his name. So if we're going to have life, if we're going to have a faith that is an anchor in the storm, then we must understand and embrace Jesus in all his fullness. We must learn to trust, trust and love him when he unexpectedly changes water into wine, and, and we must learn to love and trust him when he unexpectedly sweeps like a whirlwind into our lives into our comfortable existence, and wreaks havoc. He is not a tame God. But we find this so hard to embrace, don't we? Because we don't really want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven. The Christian scholar C.S. Lewis wrote these words in his book, The Problem of Pain. What would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to like, well, what does it matter so long as they're contented? We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. 
a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Jesus Christ is not a tame God, but he is God. And therefore, he is just as good and just as in control when he turns your life upside down and allows it to be battered by storms and disturbed by inexplicable circumstances as when everything's plain sailing. Now, some of you are thinking, well, this is a bit of a hard message, isn't it? Perhaps especially you're thinking that if you are in the storm at the moment, if the whirlwind has swept through your life, or you're living with ongoing circumstances that are breaking your heart. Last summer, I was sitting at a friend's house in the north of Boston in the United States. I was there for a pastor's study, uh, study retreat, and I was alone in the house. My friends had gone away, and I was there for the night on my own. I was sitting there watching a film, uh, a film that had... Uh, a, it was a great depiction of childhood as it really is. And suddenly at this, this unexpected moment, this thing just kind of rose up in my heart about an ongoing circumstance with one of our children. And I started sobbing like a baby. Sobbing. Lord, why does it have to be like this? So maybe you know what that feels like. And you don't just need the Lord of the wine. You need the furious Jesus as well because you need to know how strong he is to deal with those things. Now, the last thing you need to hear today is toughen up or suck it up, because that's how it is. That's not the message of our text. The message is not uh, stiff upper lip. Uh, this text, I think, aims to give us courage and comfort in the storm by confronting us with three realities. Three realities. Jesus Christ is the Son, the sacrifice, and the sanctuary. The Son, the sacrifice, and the sanctuary. Firstly, he's the one and only Son. Now, what is going on here in this temple? It was... Uh, a, a glorious building, beautifully, beautifully constructed, and it was really the heartbeat of the Jewish faith and of the Jewish people, where they were scattered all around the world. They always looked back to the temple, and three times a year they, they were called to go to the temple if they could make the journey, a sort of on pilgrimage to one of three great festivals. And the greatest of all was the festival of Passover. It was an annual event, and people would travel from all over to go to the temple. Whether you could make it or not, you still had to pay your temple tax. All men over the age of 20 were required to pay a tax, uh, as stated in, in the Old Testament, and they had to send their temple tax in through some means or other. So if you couldn't go yourself, you had to send the money by transfer, send your shekels by Western Union. But Jews were living all over the known world. There was a biggish, big Jewish community in Alexandria, North Africa. There was a big Jewish community in Rome. Jews living in Spain, they're all over the place. So if you're traveling all the way to Jerusalem, you're not going to bring your own animals, are you? You're not going to take your, your goat or your doves on the, on the journey. So they needed a lot of animals in Jerusalem to, to cater for the incoming pilgrims who were going to make a sacrifice at the temple. And also, you, you don't just need a lot of animals, you need a Thomas Cook Bureau de Change because... People are turning up with all sorts of weird currency. You know, they've got euros, drachma, and whatever else. But the temple tax has got to be paid in pucker silver shekels. So you have to have tables with people changing money. It's just the fact of the thing. It's a necessary service. Now, to give you some idea of the impact on the city of these pilgrims coming in, uh, a great a German scholar with typically Germanic 
thoroughness. A man called Joachim Jeremias calculated, based on the density of the houses and the size of the city, that the population of Jerusalem was about 30,000 people. 30,000 people. So that's a little bit smaller than Moss Side and Rushome combined. 30,000 people. But during the festival times, it swelled to up to about 180,000. So maybe 150,000 extra pilgrims coming in from all over the place. Great news if you run a bed and breakfast. But challenging for the authorities. The vast numbers of animals that are needed so that the pilgrims can buy them and have them sacrificed. So what are you going to do? Historically, they, they would keep them over the road at the Mount of Olives. But in Jesus' day, somebody had the bright idea of moving them into the temple courtyard, the outer courtyard around the outside of the temple. Now, this was a decision based on logistics, not worship. Because now the outer courtyard is full of noise, full of bleating and squawking, chit-chat, the buzz of crowds, the sound of trade. And Jesus sees it all, and he says, excuse me, I just have a couple of thoughts about this that I'd like to share. But only when you have a moment. I know you're all very busy. No, he doesn't. He is incandescent with rage. He makes a whip out of cords and drives them out. Get these out of here. Why? Because he's the one and only son of God the Father. You see this in verse 16. He says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. My father's house. Now, this language of God as father takes us back to chapter 1. We thought about this a few weeks ago. Here's what John chapter 1, verse 18 says. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, Jesus, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Now, here we get a curtain pulled back and a little glimpse into the life of God through eternity. God is not a, a solitary being. He's a, he's a triune being, a unique being, of three persons who are one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout all eternity, before time began, these three have lived together in the most delightful, happy, and joyful unity. No one's ever seen God, but John says, the one and only Son, who we know is Jesus Christ, who's in the closest possible relationship with the Father, the closest possible intimate relationship in the bosom of the Father, he's come to make him, make him known. That's why Jesus has the authority to do this at the temple. That's why he feels so churned up about it. Because he's come back, as it were, he's come home, and what does he see here? Is It's full of people doing trade. It's his place. And when he gets there, he finds it full of noise and dirt. You don't want infections at the hospital. And you don't want a butcher's market in the house of prayer. They should not be in there. Now, I've heard over the years a number of um, people speaking on this passage. And often it's implied that these guys who were trading and selling animals and, and doing the currency exchange were ripping people off. And that Jesus was sort of reacting against that. He's kind of, you know, a bit of a revolutionary. But actually, there's no evidence in our Bible passage here that they were doing anything corrupt. In one sense, they are actually providing a necessary service. But they should not be in there. And Jesus Christ is passionate about glory to God the Father. 
And these guys have changed sacred space into just another Manic Monday. And there's more than that. Jesus is passionate about God's message and God's grace being extended to non-Jews, the Gentiles. But here's the problem. Where could the Gentiles go in the temple? Those outside of Israel, those who weren't Israelites, they were, they were, they were non-Jews, they could travel up there as well, but they weren't allowed into the temple itself. They were only allowed into the courtyard. But what's in the courtyard now? <laughs> so it's, it's a completely exclusive arrangement. It's an arrangement that's it's excluding the Gentiles and turning the idea that they would come and worship God into a mockery. So Jesus gets angry because he's the one and only son. But there's more going, going on here, even more than just the righteous anger of the son, because Jesus is also thinking about his own mission and his own destiny. So the second point is that he is the sacrifice. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, uh, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now at first reading, that looks like it's saying he will be overcome with passion. He'll be so uh, passionate, he'll be consumed with zeal. But the word consume can also be translated destroy. Destroy. So it could be translated, zeal for your house will destroy me. And when you read the passage that this comes from, which is in the Old Testament, one of the Psalms, one of the poems of the Bible, Psalm 69, it's about an individual who cares deeply for God's glory. And as a result, he has loads of enemies and they plot his downfall. So zeal for God destroys him. The consuming means that zeal for God's glory will lead to the person being wiped out. So the meaning is this. In the end, zeal for God's name and God's fame will kill Jesus. And it does. This episode is put here by the writer John to start a countdown. The confrontation that starts here with the Jewish authorities, the leaders, will lead to his death step by step. So zeal for God's house is going to consume and destroy Jesus. But there's an even deeper level than that. Because see which feast it is. Have a look at verse 13 and verse 23. Book ends here reminding us of what the people were there to do. Which feast was it? Anybody going to answer me? Thank you. It was the Passover. Now at this feast, the Jewish people remembered how the blood of a lamb spread over their doorposts and across the lintel, uh, protecting their house, had covered their family and protected their family from death at the time of the Exodus. They were brought out of Egypt safely. Not a hair on their head was harmed because of the power of God, because God saw that blood covering them and it shielded them and, they, and he passed over and didn't destroy any of them. So every single year, and it's happening, uh, I think, next month, Passover is going to happen uh, as it always does. Jewish people, devout Jews, will kill a, a lamb without blemish and eat it in remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt. Now here's what's going on. When Jesus sees these people going and buying their animals and taking them into the temple to be sacrificed, he knows the logic. He knows what all of this implies what it suggests he knows that what God really requires at this moment is some serious prayerful reflection you're taking an animal in to near the presence of God but before you can get there that animal has to be killed now that's got to make you stop and think hasn't it 
When you lay down that animal, you should be thinking to yourself, this should be me. Why isn't this me? This animal is, is going to be killed so that I'm spared. It's taking my place. There's something mysterious happening there. There's something very profound and very solemn. There's a great mystery at work. It's a mystery that we could call substitution. So instead of me dying because I'm a sinful person trying to go into the presence of God, this animal is taking my place. How does that happen? That's a very profound moment and a mysterious moment. And that's why this should be a house of prayer, a place where you think, what is God doing and how is he doing it that this creature should take my place, that somehow it can substitute for me? Instead of thinking that, these people are just going through the motions. They're queuing up. Now they've turned up with their money and they've brought their animal. But there's no real worship. There's no real reflection. It's just ticking the box. So the second reason why Jesus is furious is that the very reason he came to this earth to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is being completely ignored and treated with disrespect flagrantly overlooked by the people he came to save. They should be preparing for him, the ultimate lamb, but they're actually just going through the motions. He's the one and only son. He's the last and the greatest sacrifice. But there's one more thing, and it functions, I think, on an even deeper level here. One more thing we need to understand, and it comes out in this strange dialogue in verses 18 to 21. Have a look with me again. Verse 18, the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. Jesus is the one and only son, he's the last and greatest sacrifice, but he is also here the ultimate sanctuary. He's the ultimate sanctuary. Now the temple that they were uh, visiting and that everyone was, was outside in the, in the courts was the recently renovated second temple known as Herod's Temple. King Herod the Great was a great builder. He was a man with vast ambition and a lot of money. And he created this temple to be one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the work was just finishing up and one of his sons was carrying it on. For Jewish people worldwide, it was the symbol of their nation. I think it's hard for us to imagine a building that's so iconic. It's a bit like a cross between the Taj Mahal, Mecca and the Vatican. So you've got the Taj Mahal, you've got a wonderful, just exquisite beauty. Mecca, you've got this passionate center of religious devotion. And the Vatican, you've got the center of, of an, an organization that, that spreads out around the world. So it's a little bit like all of those three rolled into one. This temple is a big deal. And that's the very place that Jesus is going and challenging. And so the authorities rightly challenge him and say, well, where do you think you get the, the authority and the right to do this? And he gives this really cryptic answer destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. What? Much later, the disciples realized that Jesus was actually talking not about the 
the bricks and mortar of the temple, but about his own body. Verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So he's talking about the temple, the sanctuary, as his own body. But why? Because of what the temple really stands for. Because of what the temple really stands for. Because the temple is all about the presence of God living with humankind. God come down to be with us. The one who is the source of all life come to live in the midst of our lives, giving us life. Now the whole Bible can be read as a story of, a sanctu- of sanctuaries. A sanctuary that was lost and at the end will be regained. The Garden of Eden, right at the very beginning of the, garden, of the Bible, is described in sanctuary language. It's like a holy, sacred, special, beautiful place. A place where there's no evil, a place where there's no dirt, a holy space where you can meet God and your life will be connected to the source of life. But when Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin and are expelled from the garden and cast out, it says that a a cherubim with a flaming sword is put in the way to stop them ever going back. There's an immense sense of loss, grief, at the life, the world we once had and now we're excluded from. We're alienated from the life of God himself. We're Enemies and strangers to him. We're going far away. We're like children lost in the forest. And so the whole Bible is a story about how can we get back to the sanctuary. And the first installment of it is a tent that's made in the wilderness by Israel called the tabernacle. A beautiful tent. And in it is imagery stitched into the the fabric of the tent of trees and fruits. The kind of garden imagery. Uh, And gold and beautiful things are used in constructing it to remind them of of the sanctuary where God lives, the precious place, the the glorious place, the place we want to be back to. And then the next iteration of that, the next occurrence of this sanctuary was even bigger and better, and it was called the temple, temple that was destroyed by the Babylonian invaders. So what does Jesus mean with this cryptic comment? The temple he had spoken of was his body. It must mean this, that the final sanctuary, the place where God's life once again connects to our life, the place where we're reconnected to the one who made us, is in Jesus Christ himself. That is to say that the place where God dwells now is not a sacred building somewhere on earth, but it's in Jesus, in his person. So the source of life is to be found in him. They're asking, how can you act as if you own the temple? And he's replying, I am the temple. I am it. You want to experience God's presence? Come to Jesus. You want to be reconciled to the one that you've been alienated from? Come to Jesus. It's the only way. And when Jesus was killed and was destroyed because of his zeal for God's house, when he was hung on a cross and gave out his last breath, A huge curtain in this very temple, a massive thick uh, curtain wall, fabric wall, which had all this imagery of trees and things on it, was was torn from top to bottom, as if by the hand of God. A barrier was opened for human beings, like you and me, to go into the presence of God and not be destroyed. It was made safe for us. The way was made open. The path to life was restored. And so now God's life can flood out 
and come into our hearts and minds and make us new people. Because now God is living with us because he became one of us, because he became the temple. Jesus Christ is the one and only son. He's the last and the greatest sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And he's the ultimate sanctuary, a place we can be reconnected with the God we once knew. Now, that's why Jesus is furious. Because these so-called worshippers were turning up and overlooking all of that and just going through the motions. That's the furious Jesus. The one and only son, the great sacrifice, the sanctuary. So let me close by asking you a question. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus, the one who can come into your life and turn over the tables and turn it upside down without a word of explanation? Do you know him? And what does knowing him actually mean to you? If you're a Christian here, let me ask you, does your religion make you a lover of God? Does it change your heart and your affections and something warm up inside you when you think of him? Do you want to talk to him, want to pray? Do you want to read his word and hear him speak to you? Are you changing? Are you growing in him? Is there any kind of life, spiritual life, flooding through you? Or are you essentially an occasional worshipper who turns up at the required times and does what you're required to do? Do you know this, Jesus? Are you becoming a lover of God or just somebody who prays when you need something? What is driving you, your faith at your core, inside? Is it duty? I know I, need, I know I need to do these things. Is it just, has it deteriorated into habits? Or is there something going on in there that could be described as adoration? For the one and only son, for the great sacrifice who laid down his life for you, for the sanctuary, the place you can go and be at home. If Jesus Christ walked into the temple of your life, what would he say? Would he be pleased with what he found? Or would he turn some tables upside down and say, get these out of here? Are you becoming a true worshipper? Now perhaps for some of you, he's turning the tables upside down right at the moment. And I want to ask, how are you responding? How are you responding? Now that life is not fun-filled, now that it's full of inexplicable circumstances and things, the whirlwind has come, you're not living in joy. We like it when he turns up and changes water to wine, but now he's here with the whip. It puts some Christians out of the game for years. Let me beg you and ask you to be the kind of person who will hold on to Jesus when he's furious who will remember that he's the one and only son, that he came for you, that he was there for you, that he laid down his life for you, and so now he will meet you in the hard place if you go to him. Not to just ditch it all because life became difficult. To remember who you're dealing with. If, let me ask some of you here, some uh, leaders, those of you who, who uh, you know, serve and, and, and help in the church, and, and you're pouring a lot of your time and energy in, has your service of Jesus replaced worship and love? You know, he didn't come just to fill your diary. He didn't die for you to, to, to make you busy. 
He died for you to turn you into a lover of God. He died as the ultimate sacrifice and he became the ultimate sanctuary. So don't settle for anything less than a saviour who does all of this. And may he change you for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to remember and acknowledge that you are our father, not our grandfather. That you are wise, God only wise. That every day ordained for us was written in your book before one of them came to pass. That you hem us in behind and before. Your knowledge is too wonderful for us, too lofty for us to attain. We couldn't even count your thoughts. And yet sometimes we presume to think that we know better for our lives than you do. Forgive us for this presumption. Thank you that you sent Jesus to be one of us and to show us the depth of your love. Thank you that he was strong, but he became weak for us. Thank you that he became a sacrificial lamb to take away our sin. Thank you that he's opened that curtain, opened the door for us to know you. Please help us to commune with you, to be men and women, boys and girls who are lovers of God. And would you change us, we pray, from one glory to the next until finally we see you face to face. Thank you for this precious time together today. Thank you for the wonderful music, the singing. Thank you for hearing your word and hearing about mission projects. But spare us from ever being busy Christians. May we be those who press on into knowing you more and more and more. And would you change us, we pray, for the glory of your Son. Amen.